All right, I have a pretty weird question to start out this morning, so don't be too alarmed. But what in the world does astral projection and hermaphrodites have to do with Jesus? Yeah, I have absolutely no idea either. But yesterday, there was a homeless man who walked by my window that I got talking to, and I asked him about Jesus, and he launched into a conversation about astral projection and hermaphrodites. And I realized that there's some sort of miscommunication <laughs> that is going on. You guys, you, you know about that. Like you, try, you go to talk to someone, and you're using language, and they, they're not getting it, and they don't understand. Now, as, as a father, I have this wonderful opportunity to practice communication with small children. And so I'll tell them to do something. And in my, you know, parental magnificence, I have a strategy for that. I tell them again. <laughs> and then, you know, my, my general strategy is, well, I tell them the same thing, only I increase the volume and anger levels of my voice. And at that point, we're either dealing with, you know, uh, consequences, or maybe if their father happens to be humble enough, I might change my strategy and try to communicate in a different way, because they're just not getting it. Does anyone relate to that this morning? Has that happened? Am I all alone in the world? I saw one hand. Thank you. Thank you so much. I was like, dang it. All right. You know, I, I heard a story about a guy named Don. Some of you may be familiar with his story. He was a missionary in, in Papua New Guinea. And he wanted to bring the gospel to this, uh, <laughs> this tribe that practiced the cannibalism of their enemies. You know, they, they needed the gospel. And he comes and he works long and hard and he gets to know their language and he begins to tell them the story about Jesus. And he gets to the part of the story where Judas betrays Jesus. And all of a sudden, everyone in the crowd has a giant smile on their face. And Judas becomes the local hero. Because in this tribe... One of the, their values was if you could trick your enemies into thinking that you want to make peace with them, if you could get them to trust you and then just stick it to them and eat their body afterwards, you would be a local legend. Like that was amazing. Judas betraying Jesus, like, oh, that guy's so tight. He's our dude. And, and poor Don is just like, oh no. There's a, there's a contextual problem here. How do we address it? See, this morning, we're going to be in the book of Acts. Uh, we've been going through the, the two-volume work, Luke, Acts, and we're come to chapter 17. It's a famous speech that a guy named Paul gives about Jesus called the speech on the Areopagus, the speech on Mars Hill. If you ever heard that term, it comes from Acts chapter 17. I mean, he's going to run into some issues, and he's going to have to change the way that he communicates. So if you remember last week, and Paul's on his, Paul and Silas, they're on their second missionary journey. And Paul, they were up here in Thessalonica and in Berea, and they got ran out of town. And it was so bad that they put Paul on a boat and they sailed him 250 miles south to the Greek capital, Athens, you know, beautiful Athens. And while Paul is waiting there in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. All right. It's still a picturesque uh, town today, but 
You know, they have idols everywhere. They have temples everywhere. And in Paul's day, that temple had a roof on it. And those ladies were in technicolor. So um, it, it hurt his heart to see it. It wasn't, it wasn't this amazing, you know, historical artifact. It's like, no, these are real things in culture. And it bothered him. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. All right, half of that sentence we're used to seeing, half of that sentence is new. It's Paul's custom to go to the synagogues to reason with Jews and God-fearing Greeks. But that little thing about the marketplace, that's a new one. Now, if you're reading the story, as all stories go, one of the things that we should pay attention to is setting, what time and place. You know, you get it. If, a, if I say a man goes down to New York City versus a man went to Las Vegas versus a man went to Skid Row, you have different associations with those places. What kind of place is the marketplace? And if we're paying attention in the book of Acts, we realize this is a scary place to be. In Philippi, Paul and Silas were drug into the marketplace to face the authorities. They were then beaten and thrown in jail. In Thessalonica, when the Jews got jealous, they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They started a riot in the city, and this mob came to find Paul, and they had to run away in the middle of the night. And in Berea, it was the same Thessalonian Jews and bad characters from the marketplace that ran them out of that town. So how Paul is in the marketplace teaching about Jesus, and we wonder what's going to happen. Now, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. These are, are the two kind of main schools of thought in Athens at the time. You know, these are the main philosophies. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Uh, you know, really, literally, what it, it's like, what is this third-rate community college philosophy dropout talking about? You know, he's, he's grabbing an idea from here and from here, and he pretends like he knows something, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. And others remarked, well, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, plural. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. God number one, Jesus and the resurrection. God number two? Anastasis? Is that like a lady or what? Like they, they are not understanding what Paul is trying to communicate. And so then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, uh, a meeting of Mars Hill, of this assembly. And Luke's doing something a little bit weird. They took and brought him. That's the language of being arrested. Or is it? Like, is Paul on trial? Is What's going on? We don't know. But they say, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to know what they mean. (laughs) We don't understand what you're talking about. Will you explain it? At this point, Luke says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, they spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. All right, it's just what, it, it's all they did in their day. You know, you go to the supermarket checkout in Athens and there's the gossip magazines and it's not about celebrity wardrobes. It's about like the latest new ideas and they just, they traded in that all day long. I don't know if they had supermarkets back then, I doubt it. But you know, that's the idea. Now, 
I just want to stop here because what's going to happen is Paul is going to give us this, this speech. It's one of the, the big speeches in the book of Acts. But there's this glaring omission in the text. Luke is not telling us something. When Paul arrived in Athens, he went to the synagogues. He talked to the God-fearing Greeks. And in Antioch and Iconium and Thessalonica, everywhere else that Paul goes, even Corinth next, when he goes into the synagogues, what we expect to hear is, and he presented them the gospel about Jesus, and some of them, or many of them, believed, and many of the Greeks believed, and eventually the Jews rejected him, and he goes to the Gentiles, and persecution rises up, and he has to head out of town. Like, that's the pattern, but we're told how people respond, and Luke is utterly silent about that. We, we don't hear anything about how the Jews took the message. We don't hear anything about God-fearing Greeks. In fact, in the speech, Paul is about to tell us we will hear nothing of Israel. Jesus will not be mentioned by name. Paul will quote, no scriptures. The term Messiah doesn't come up. And then Paul's going to leave Athens. We, he just... Luke, as a narrator, is leaving out a whole bunch of information that we would normally get, that he includes everywhere else. And it seems like he's doing that very intentionally because he wants us to focus on what is here in the text, what he's presenting to us. And that is the changing shape of the one message about Jesus for a global community. Paul is going to recontextualize everything. He's going to take the one message and he's going to frame it in language that the Athenians can understand because they're not getting Jesus and the resurrection. And I think Luke is, is just focusing. He says, this is important. So he's not commenting on the rest of the stuff. We don't know what happens. The church is not mentioned in Athens. Did, did Paul plant a church there or not? I, no idea. But it wasn't imp- this, what Luke is about to tell us is more important than all of that. So let's keep reading. So Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Clearly looking around for as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Like the religious elites of Athens are just like, all right, we think we got everything covered but let's just cover our bases and have this extra altar here for the one that we missed. All right, to the unknown God. There's some cool Athenian history that might be part of that, but just (laughs) they have an altar for the unknown God. And so Paul says, so you're ignorant, you smart Athenians, you, of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So something in their culture, Paul says, aha, I'll talk about this. Now the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. I'm going to stop there because this, this is just fun. There is one God. Looking around the city full of temples and idols and everything else, that in itself is a debated subject. Paul's like, no, there's one God. He made the world and everything in it. And he is also Lord of heaven and earth. Because in Greek mythology, you had two gods that made you know, the sky and the land. And those two gods had children and one of those children killed his father and took up lordship of the gods. And then he had kids. And then his son, you know, castrated him and cast him down. And then later gave him like an island in the Mediterranean to rule. Like 
Greek mythology is messed up. <laughs> and Paul's like, no, there's one God. He made everything. He's still in charge. So now let's, let's think logically about this, all right? If God made everything, heaven and earth, well, then he does not live in temples built by human hands. Ahem. You know, like all, everything you have going on in Athens, like this doesn't make sense, right? If he's that big, then clearly he can't live here. That's too small of a box. You can't fit God into that. All right. Now let's continue further. Let's think about it. And he's not served by human hands. I'm going to hold on pause until that thing gets taken up because if I can't concentrate, I know none of you can. We good? All right. Public service announcement. Please silence your cell phones. Y'all good. All right. So if God made heaven and earth and he can't fit into a temple, if he can't fit into the temple, then he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Again, ahem. Like within a few short sentences, Paul has sort of called into question the entire religious industrial complex of the entire city. Like you can't, you can't meet his needs. He's way too big. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Every good thing you've ever experienced has come from this God that you don't know, but I'm going to tell you about him. And from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and history and the boundaries of their lands. All right. He's talking about Adam. We know from the biblical story, he just doesn't call him that. He's not mentioning the Hebrew scriptures. He's not saying anything. He's just telling them the story We all came from one descendant, and this God of heaven and earth is in charge of all peoples of all times, all right? So he knew about America and China and Russia and Britain. He's known about Athens and Greece and Rome and Persia and Babylon and Israel and all the rest. He's in charge. It also implies that no one nation has the leash on God. He's the God of the whole whole world. And God did this. He had a reason. He did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. The image of like someone, you know, groping in the dark, like where is that stupid light switch? It's on this wall somewhere. Like that. God wanted the nations to find him, to to discover God. See, it hasn't gone too well. You guys made a bunch of idols, but he's not actually far from any one of us. He's a God that's big. He's just way, way out there. He doesn't fit in your boxes and he's not served by humans. And he's also the God that's way, way, way in here who wants to be known, who wants to be found. See, for in him, we live and move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul is quoting some of their local poets, uh, you know, who are so well known as to just be cliche. So you don't need to go read the Greek poem, you know, the phenomena or Epimenides, It's not going to get you far. Just know Paul is taking their language and he's using it for his own purposes. All right. He says, we're his offspring. We're actually God's children. So let's think about this. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image that's made by human, uh, human imagination or design and skill. All right. If God gave birth to us, then The closest thing to the divine being that you can encounter is your fellow human beings. But if it's anything that is made by people, it can't be God. Whether it's a statue or a government or anything else, if humans were involved in making it, it doesn't 
qualify. Your own poets are saying this. Like here, we're just thinking logically. Again, (laughs) he's like shattering the foundation of everything that's going on in the city of Athens. It's fantastic. In a very nice way in the public square. Now, in the past, Paul says, God overlooked such ignorance. You, You got it all wrong. You're worshiping idols and everything else. And God, it wasn't like it was okay, but he just wasn't dealing with it in the past. But things have changed. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to to turn, to change your mind, to, to realize the truth and live in light of it, to repent. Because he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. Some of your scriptures will say in righteousness, it's the same word in Greek. So in the New Testament, if you read justice or righteousness, it could go either way. All right. He's going to judge the world righteously by the man that he's appointed. All right. The judge has been set. The day of judgment has been set and the whole world will be judged. So everyone's got to change. And God has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. See what he did there? Didn't mention Jesus, didn't mention the resurrection. And yet he's talking about these things. Now, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. (laughs) Like, that is the dumbest idea we've ever heard, Paul. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. We don't really want to repent right now, but tell us more later. And at that, Paul left the council. He got out of there with his skin intact, which is good. And some of the people became followers of Paul and they believed. And among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus. He was one of the philosophical cultural elite. And he's like, yeah, no, this this story makes sense. Also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Paul changed his message and people responded and some of them got saved. He tried something new and it kind of worked. And he's going to go back to his old, you know, next week in Corinth, He's going to just go back to the way that things have been. But Luke is focusing our attention on a man who's taking the one message of Jesus and he's just making it understandable because, you know, shouting louder and getting angry doesn't, doesn't actually work. They weren't getting it. So let's just look again. What does Paul tell a bunch of, you know, guys who are very religious and have no idea what they're talking about, about God? Here's some truths. He says, your idols are mistakes. You have wrong notions about who God is. You don't know the God that you worship, but I know this God. I'm going to tell you about him. He made the world and everything in it. He's Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't dwell in temples, and he's not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything from us. Rather, he's the one who actually blesses people with life, breath, and all things. And he made all the nations and determined their times and boundaries. And he wanted them to seek him out, to feel for him and find him. He's a God who wants to be known by you. And he's not far from us. We are already in him. We are his offspring. So therefore, don't think that he's like idols of earth or human skill and imagination. Like if we, if we made it, it cannot be like God. And so God proclaimed to humanity that all people everywhere, regardless of, of time, space, culture, language, all people are called to repent. God's been tolerant in the past. Things have changed. He set a day for judgment, righteous, just judgment of the world through the man that he appointed. And he's proved, he's given proof to everyone. Again, regardless of where you are in time, space, or history, or culture, everyone has a proof. God raised this man from the dead. 
He is going to be the judge of the entire world. So we're going to summarize what Paul has said this morning. Sorry. And of course, he got a mixed response. But he got a response. Some sneered, others delayed, and some joined and believed, you know, which is not bad. But I'd summarize it like this. The just God of the universe is calling everyone everywhere to account through Jesus. So repent. All right? He's a God for everyone. He's a God for everybody. And in all people, all nations, all cultures are called to account in Jesus. So, so repent. Or for us, I'd say, like, we have good news to share. We need to learn to translate well. I think it's a way for, for us readers uh, of the book of Acts to try to make sense of what Luke is doing and what Paul is, is showing us. So here's, here's ways of responding. Okay, one, we should know and obey the one true God. And then two, we should learn to contextualize the gospel. All right, there's some fancy words for you. It just means make it understandable to different kinds of people. So know and obey the one true God. At this point, we are, uh, we are taking the position of the Athenians who are sitting down there on Mars Hill listening to Paul talk, and we're like, oh, we need to give up wrong notions about God. Do we think that he is like something that we've imagined? Do we, are we living in ways that are consistent? Like even with what we say we believe and that our actions doesn't make sense because Paul's like, you have an unknown God, you know God made heaven and earth. Clearly they can't live in these temples nor be served by you. Like even what you're doing doesn't make sense by your own standards, let alone by what's true. And of course, we all are called to repent and submit to Jesus, um, to recognize him as the Lord, as the judge of the entire earth. As, there's a lot more to the good news about Jesus um, than just simply he's going to be judging the whole earth and you all need to repent and you can. Um, more explanation is needed. But, but yeah, will, will you choose to follow Jesus? Because one day he's going to fix this planet and us. And we show that by getting, getting baptized, which is not mentioned. It's just what you do as a Jesus follower to show that you follow him. Now for the second part, to learn to contextualize the gospel or to make it understandable to different kinds of people, here's what I see Paul doing. First, he's seen and acknowledging what is right or almost right in a culture. So you Athenians, you are very religious. You even have an altar to the unknown God. If this was Portland, I, we could pick things like, you Portlanders, you really care about the environment. Hey, you know what? That's actually good. We believe that God made nature. And that when you go out in nature and you experience something divine out there, you feel connected to something vast and, and, and amazing and loving, that's actually God that you are sort of feeling around blindly. Like He's the one you're sensing. We just need to, to tell you about it. There's something almost right. Or we could pick justice or uh, respect for um, the cultural differences and individuality of, of others. Like there's other things in our culture we can go, yeah, that's, that's right, or that's almost right. But then how do we see and acknowledge what's wrong in a culture? And Paul's like, you know, your idols, they don't make sense. Or, or we could say in, in Portland, like, you know, the way that you are going about this nature worship is not good. Or um, the ways that you are trying to fight for justice is not necessarily right, um, or, or laws won't change human hearts. Like, whatever it is, we can find things that are like, this, this is where we're out of line. And then, how do we learn and practice communicating the news about Jesus in a way that is good and understandable to others in that culture? Um, okay, so 
I don't think it's necessarily going to have anything to do with astral projection and hermaphrodites uh, and, a, and a homeless guy who's, who's on drugs. But maybe it needed to. I don't, I don't know. I, I wondered after that conversation, like, what, what does the good news of Jesus look like to him? Could it, could it be explained in a way that he could understand with where he was at in life? What, is, what does the good news of Jesus look like in our culture today? Um, most people in Portland aren't talking about sin and, and how to deal with it. We have different questions. Do we get louder? Do we get angrier? Or do we change our perspective? Because Paul came and he's reasoning in the marketplaces and the result of talking to them about Jesus and the resurrection was they accused him of babbling and of preaching foreign gods. They just don't have any idea. So they finally ask him to be clear and he changes the way he communicated and some people got saved. All right. But of course, that's all nice to say this is how it should be done. Um, I don't really know how to do that. Not well. So, so as a student, as, as someone who's working at this, um, as someone, like this is, this is the missionary task to communicate the good news. Um, let's practice it. Let's, let's try to, to do this with Paul and maybe, just maybe, some people will respond. Uh, and yet, I think for us, we need to have some further implications uh, of the passage this morning of like, how, how, do, how do we respond? Because we don't live in Athens. Most of us aren't traveling itinerant missionaries trying to bring the gospel to a place. Like Portland has the gospel. There's a lot of churches here. And yet many people in Portland have never even heard about Jesus. But, but what are we going to do in light of this? So I have, I have some suggestions, ways to feel, ways to think, um, things to learn, uh, possibly, or or practices to do, and, and just pick one. Like, you know, which one makes you feel the most uncomfortable and yet you think you should do it? Or, or which one you're like, that, that's what I need to do today. So one, I think we should feel amazed at the God of the universe. Like he created everything. Creation is wonderful. He takes care of people who don't know or understand him. That's amazing. He is patient with people who have gotten it wrong. What do we do with that? Like, what, a, what an amazing God. I think we could also feel humbled by the task of telling others about Jesus. Maybe we have to recognize we aren't getting it right. I'm using words and they don't understand. And maybe that's not their problem. Maybe that's my problem. And that, that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. Maybe I need to change. Oh, I hate changing. Or maybe we need to feel grieved over the ways that the world get God, gets God wrong. I know for me, like, uh, one of those little, like, flashpoints is when I hear people um, talk about the Christian God as the God of Western imperialist European males that wants to oppress women and colonize the world. I just go, oh, you have not understood the Christian God at all. He's a God who's always had a multi-ethnic community. I mean, you had two Egyptian boys who got in on the ground level of being part of the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, on the day of Pentecost, you had guys from Africa and Asia and, and everywhere. I mean, we serve a Jewish Messiah who was unjustly murdered by the powerful regime of the day. Like, this is not, you know, the, the early church, you know, are promoting women all throughout Acts. Luke is pointing them out. Like, there's, it's just not that. And if we've turned the gospel into that, we need to repent because we have gotten God so, so wrong. Um, 
But you know, the world, it, it senses something. There's someone out there, but they don't understand. So maybe we need to feel differently. Maybe we need to think about, all right, you thinkers in the room, okay? How does the good news of Jesus hold up in the marketplace of ideas? Maybe that's something that you can ponder. Well, what are the other options out there? You know, uh, scientific materialism, like there is, you know, time, space, and matter are just eternal, and everything in this world is the culmination of a bunch of random chances from the Big Bang, so there's no ultimate meaning in life. Take what pleasure you can, and then you're going to die and feed worms, and that's the end. Okay, well, that's one option. Um, Does that help me live better? Does that give meaning to my life, or does this message about Jesus actually make more sense about life? Like, I don't know. Maybe you need to ponder that. Or maybe we could, you could ask yourself, is the way that I'm living my life and the truth about God consistent? Like in, what, in light of what I believe is true and, and then how I live, do those things make sense? So you can internalize that and think about it, or you could get really brave and you could ask someone close to you to point out if there's any inconsistencies. Good luck with that. All right, but those are some things you might think about. Again, just I'm, I'm going through, so, so pick one. All right? Maybe you need to learn about something called apologetics, the defense of the good news of Jesus. Um, different, you know, Paul is, is arguing in the philosopher's corner about the one true God and about Jesus. Maybe we need to learn that, okay? Uh, the arguments from science and from philosophy, the arguments from history, there's good reasons for believing what we believe. Are we able to uh, provide a, a credible defense of that? And if you're interested in learning more, there's podcast books, conversations, Uh, or even like YouTube videos, I would suggest that you watch. And so I just welcome you. If you want more information, let me know, and I will give you what resources I have found. And for those of you online, my email address is jordan at familyofgracepdx.org, and you can just email me. I'll send you some links. Maybe you just need to learn some stuff. Or maybe there's a practice. Maybe some really bold people among you or community groups will actually have a conversation, and you'll ask someone, can I practice talking to you about Jesus. And the question at the end is, did that make any sense whatsoever? Or have I just managed to confuse you? Because if even the apostle Paul needed to change his methods, then we probably need practice, right? Um, Or, you know, here's an idea. For those of you who are parents, here's something you can do. When your kids are watching shows, can you help them understand what is being communicated by that, that cultural message? And then can you talk about it in the context of the gospel? And this, was, this one's fun because children's movies and stories are easier to understand. Uh, most of us, you know, what, what we watch is a little bit harder. Like what message is being confuted, uh, communicated? I don't know, but it's interesting. For our kids, it's like it's not that interesting. So the message is a lot more simple to us. So I watch shows with my kids and how that goes is I'll look, hey, look, you know, Disney or, or this show or this show. All of these people are saying that you should follow your heart and you should be true to yourself, right? That, that's the good life. You have to hold on to your convictions and what, what your heart tells you is true. And of course, they aren't telling you that all of the villains in the story are also living out of what they think is true too. It's not consistent. And of course, you know, the Bible says we don't even know what's right and we make a mess of things when we all chase our heart. Like, we need new hearts. I don't know. That's how the conversation goes down in the Hooten family. So I ruin a lot of shows for my kids. You know, there you go. But it is a practice. Like, maybe, maybe. But like, how do we take, 
How do we take this message and how do we make it understandable to people or, or even to us? Maybe this one we just need to pray. Like, God, give me eyes to see how the good news of Jesus might be shared here. I, I shared that story early on about Don. And again, I saw some of you guys nodding. You know the story I'm talking about. You know, the cannibalistic culture that he's trying to bring the message of the gospel to that thinks Judas is a hero. Well, Don ends up getting so frustrated, he decides, that's it, we're leaving. And as he's about to, you know, to pull up uh, stakes and, and move on, the local tribal communities realize, wait, this guy has brought us like tools and medicine and a bunch of things we really like. We really want him to stick around. We need to make peace. And so Don watched in this crazy thing that happened as two of the village elders from the different tribal villages basically nabbed a child from their village, ran across the battle line and exchanged kids and went back. And then everyone went home. He's like, what in the world is this? And he, that's when he learned about a peace child. In that culture, if you really wanted to make peace, you trade kids. And you raise your enemy's child as if they were part of your village. And as long as these child, children are alive and well, there's peace and harmony between these villages. You know, finding true peace is that costly. And Don went, Oh, wait a second. I think I just found a cultural altar to an unknown God. And he began to communicate the story about Jesus, about how Jesus is a peace child that God gave to make peace with humanity. And the tribes began to listen. And then he got to the part where Judas killed the peace child. Suffice to say, his reputation took a serious downfall after that. It was good. And it, and it wasn't, it wasn't the, the linchpin that all of a sudden brought a whole tidal wave of conversions, but it was a start to God working in that culture and people understanding the message. And eventually quite a number of people began to get saved. Like, God, would you help us to see where there are areas in our community, in our, in our neighborhoods? What do people need to hear about Jesus? And maybe we just need to pray, Father, would you help me to love Jesus and give me opportunities to share the news about him with others? All right, because the just God of the universe will one day judge everyone everywhere through Jesus. The world is called to repent and we have good news to share. So let us learn to translate that well. Let's pray. Gracious Father, holy and good God, we thank you that, that for your patience, that you, um, you gave time for the nations to go their own ways and we thank you that you are calling all of us to repentance. God, we thank you that your judgment day has not come yet, that there is an opportunity for, for even us now to turn to you, to tell others to turn to you, that the doors of grace and love and blessing are still open. But God, we're also grateful that a day of judgment is coming, that one day um, the wrongs of the world will be righted and the evils of the world will be dealt with and we ourselves will be changed. Um, Father, let us hold out the hope of Jesus to one another. And Lord, give us the humility and the patience and the endurance and the encouragement to keep practicing, to keep working to express this good news in ways that others can understand so that they might respond. And of course, Lord, may all the results be in your hand, but would you save many, uh, even among our neighbors and neighborhood and family, and even here. We just ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.